0: Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S Y L V A N 29.com.
1: Hey, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer here with my co hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. I say good blizzard to you. Hey, guys. Yeah, pretty snowy outside. Yeah, with Blood the weather. Light. A lot like uh the snow in, in uh sundance how sundance
0: it was great it didn't actually uh it didn't actually snow while i was there but there was snow there was snow on the i ground. saw some great films in fact i saw the film
1: that john ronson talks about in the podcast oh, that shit. he co-wrote which is hilarious and amazing it's called frank i don't know when it'll be out generally but uh i loved it right on who'd you talk to this week aaron uh i talked to roger hodge Uh, he is the current editor of Oxford American. Uh, he's the former editor of Harper's in a relatively short span. Uh, he's seen uh, a lot of upheaval in the world of uh, magazine publishing and he had a lot of interesting, uh, things to say about that. That's a great magazine too. Oxford American. Yeah. Yeah. The latest issue, the uh, Southern music issue is fantastic. And it's it's on the newsstands now and it comes with a CD, which he gave me, but I was unable to play because I don't have a CD player. (laughs) Uh, Do we have any sponsors this week? We do. We have a pair. Uh, The first is Tiny Letter. It's a simple, elegant way to send an email newsletter. It's done by the good people of MailChimp. We thank them for their sponsorship. Uh, Additionally, we're sponsored by Random House, who have a great new book out, uh, Gary Steingart's Little Failure. I literally started it on the train ride here, and I will report back as I progress through it. All right. Here's Aaron with Roger Hodge. Welcome, Roger Hodge.
0: Thank you. Good to be here.
1: Just getting started. I was actually i um, i had had you on my list of people to have on the show for a while, and I assumed that you lived in Arkansas <laughs> until um, I I did get to talk to uh, to someone who started working for you, and she said, "No, he's he's in Park Slope." You, yeah, you, actually, you not Park Slope, but oh. I do live in Brooklyn. Okay, we won't disclose your exact <laughs> location.
0: Well, it, it's been published. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's Ditmas Park, so no <laughs> mysteries there.
1: Um. So despite your Ditness Park location, you are editing Oxford American, which is based in Arkansas? Yes, Little Rock?
0: Little Rock and Conway.
1: How, how long have you been uh, at the helm there? I joined in September 2012. September 20th, 2012. So uh, for people, I think most people listening will have some familiarity with, with the magazine, but for people who haven't picked it up, what is Oxford American?
0: The Oxford American is a literary quarterly that that explores the diversity and vitality of Southern culture. Uh, we 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 have a long and storied literary history, but we also do a lot of music coverage, uh, a lot of journalism, and we publish poetry, fiction, etc. So it's 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 a in some ways it's a general interest magazine devoted to the s- Southern United States, and my v- approach to what the South is 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 pretty is pretty loose. Uh, I think of it as the greater South um, I'm not too hung up on southern stereotypes. I'm not too hung up on whether my writers are from the South uh, or live in the South. I don't live in the South although I'm from the South, yeah. That's so it, when you w- when
1: you're talking to someone say who who would who is interested in writing for Oxford American what what kind of a pitch are you looking for? I mean, what what kind of a story, uh, especially in terms of your features? What boxes are you trying to check off when you think about what you want to see on on the cover?
0: I don't have any boxes really. I don't have a recipe. Hmm. I'm just looking for good stories. And if if the story is if the story takes place in the South, if it's connected to the South, if it passes through the South, it doesn't really matter. I mean, mm-hmm. really, I'm just looking for stories. and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna reject a pitch just because there's no southern hook. In fact, I don't like stories that make a big deal about the South. i'm I'm impatient with the mythology of the South and the trappings of Southernness. Uh, I think I think we've 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 had enough of that. Uh, it's no big deal. The South is a is a, a defined region. It has an identity, but it doesn't have a fixed identity. It's not just one thing either. Mm-hmm. The South is really a collection of of regions rather than one region. And so I don't have boxes that I check off. I, I look for good stories. I look for good
1: writing. I was very impressed in the most recent issue, which I think is the music issue. Mm-hmm. Um, the Tennessee music issue. You've got uh, Roseanne Cash, um, Jim Dickinson, who... Played piano on wild horses, I yeah. believe, and these like pretty pretty incredible um, lineup of of musicians. But these aren't people who who are known for their writing. Um, how do you how do you put together an issue like that that is largely based around non writers?
0: Yeah, that, that it's interesting how, that many of the pieces in that issue were written by musicians. Uh, the Roseanne piece came about uh, because. Her A uh, and R person at Blue Note uh, got in touch with me to let me know that that she had this new album coming out, and Roseanne has written for the magazine in the past. So then it was a question of of f- for me of, of just having a conversation. We I went into the studio to hear an early mix of the album, uh, and Roseanne dropped by and we started talking, and 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 we hatched this this plan for an essay and she wasn't exactly sure what the essay was going to be but it was again it was a conversation we and and she wrote this beautiful piece in integrating some of her new songs uh, from the album and then we put a song from the album on this on our cd because we include a double in this case a double cd with the issue and then she came and played in Little Rock in our restaurant. We have a restaurant and performance space oh, wow. uh, in Little Rock. Sounds called delightful. S- called South on Main. And so she played that and kind of launched the issue for us. Yeah. Um, Jim Dickinson, he died, uh, gosh, I'm not even sure. Two or that, three years. Uh, ago. A little further back than yeah. that even. Uh, but we found out about this manuscript, this book-length memoir that he had written. And so we got it. And... Uh, it's it's amazing. It's beautiful, and it's 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 a portrait of the artist as a young musician to, for the most part. But but then there are all these g- great stories, like the Rolling Stones scene, uh, where where he's with the Stones at Muscle Shoals. Uh, the issue didn't take us that far. I mean, the piece, which is sixteen thousand words, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> did not go that far. It didn't go that far into his career. Right. It was mostly. Uh, the arc of his development as a musician, and I was focusing in the in the edit on the on his obsession with the color line and his quest as a young man, as a boy, to find this music. That that's the the angle we followed. The thread we followed through the piece, and so we had to leave a lot of great, great <laughs> stuff out. Uh, but I, I I suspect this book will be published.
1: So this This journey that has taken you to Oxford American is sort of a, a round trip for you in a way, in that you are from the south and And um, what where did you start becoming interested in, in writing?
0: oh I, I, I always was. Uh, I grew up in del Rio, Texas, went to public schools. Uh, so I mean, I, I, I've encountered writers. In school, you know, uh, m- for the most part, I think uh, Dostoevsky and and uh, yeah. although Kafka, I think I, Kafka was one of the big you know landmarks in my education as a reader and 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 I, and, and thus as a writer.
1: Um, I don't know anything about Del Rio. Is uh, is an interest a in Kafka bitty, unusual in Del probably, Rio?
0: Probably, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a little bitty town on the Mexican border. Hmm. So the, the 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 books that made a big that made. A, a big impact on me were um, *Crime and Punishment*, uh, the collected short writings of shorter writings of Kafka, uh, and *The Sound and the Fury*. Those were the big the the books that kind of blew my mind when I was a kid. Um, of course, I, I mean, I probably read six hundred science fiction novels before I came in contact with them, and I and I remember I remember the moment when I was after I had read. Faulkner or someone, and and then I read a science fiction novel. And I thought, oh, I mean, uh, there's a lot of great science fiction. Don't get me wrong, but the one, the particular one that I turned, it was the moment when I realized, oh, this is crap. This yeah. this book, whatever this book was, it was terrible. And it was this critical moment where I realized, oh, you know, there are, there's some writing that's good, and there's some writing that's <laughs> right. not good. It, this just happened to be a science fiction book that I was reading. That was a that was. A landmark in yeah. my memory. Um, by the time I got to Swanee, I went to the University of the South in Tennessee.
1: Glad you said that before me, because I was going to go for Um <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: By the time I got to Swanee I knew I wanted to be a writer or an editor or something like that. I didn't know exactly what. Yeah. And that was a great place to
1: be if you wanted to be a writer. What, what was it like? I, I know nothing about it.
0: Well, Swanee just has, a, has a, a great literary atmosphere, a great literary tradition. The Swanee Review is one of the great little magazines in American letters. Alan Tate was there and Andrew Lytle. And it, it, it was a place that made you think, oh, I could be a writer. The, the life of literature was so present. There weren't all these other distractions. If I'd gone to college in, in New York City... Who knows which way I would have gone? I, I, the, all these other opportunities would have presented themselves, and but it—it—it it, it, it Swanee writing and and the the life of writing, um, just seemed an obvious thing to do, um, or at least an obvious thing to try. And uh, plenty of writers come out of NYU, yeah. but uh, <laughs> whether I would have, uh, because I was not—I wasn't a well—I fo- wasn't a. Strongly formed personality. When I got to college, I was a, just a kid. I didn't know what I wanted to do.
1: Uh, and you, when you were done with school, um, became an intern at Harper. Is that right?
0: No, I bounced around for a yeah. while. Um, I uh, we went to we went to Chap My wife and I we weren't married at the time. Uh, went to Chapel Hill and I started writing. I started writing professionally uh, for money. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I also had a lot of other jobs. <laughs> I was, uh, mo- uh, I was a, mostly a line cook at a bakery in Durham. Yeah.
1: Uh, well, Got an internship at the
0: Independent Weekly, this, this Alt Weekly there, and uh, started reviewing. I was, I was doing jazz reviews for the Chapel Hill Newspapers Weekend Entertainment Supplement, which was great because I got into every show for free and everybody was passing through town um and just started trying to be a writer. I didn't know how to be a writer. Again, you know, still just kind of filling notebooks, trying to figure out how to how to find my voice as a as a writer or or, you know, find a, a way to, to be an editor. Um then uh detoured through Florida. I worked as an insurance adjuster. Um, which Florida was,
1: seems like a good place to adjust them and shit. <laughs> <laughs> it was unspeakably grim. <laughs> uh, what bro- you were like? You're like screw this jazz reviewing. I'm no, going to head my down to Florida.
0: My, my girlfriend got a job in Jacksonville, which is uh. Uh, she was from a beach town near Jacksonville. So we ended up there, and there was no, there was no literary market there. I mean, in Durham there was a literary market. There yeah. were there were there were you could write for the Alt Weekly. You could you know at least try to get a job at the sun, you know, yeah. the sun, um, this great old literary magazine there, or there was Algonquin books. There, there were things you could, tr- you could try for. A even man if, could dream. Yeah. You could write, you could write jazz reviews, even though you were, you know, I, I, I would hate to go back and look at them now, but I was a fan. We'll put them in the show. <laughs> <laughs> I was a fan. I may I may have been an idiot, but I was a fan. Uh, but in, in Jacksonville, there was nothing. And um, I didn't know how to approach a national publication.
1: Yeah, so I was going to say. I mean, do you have any sort of community? Did you know anyone who was getting paid any more than you writing? or No. Yeah. No.
0: And there was no internet. You know, there was no, well, there was, but I didn't know about it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the, and most people didn't either. And there was, it was hard to find out w- what you could do. How to, how, there, it was hard to f- f- just find out about magazines. I'd go to the library and I would read the Paris Review uh, and uh, I would look at different literary quarterlies and uh, I would try to write short stories. Um, I probably started several different novels at the time, but I didn't know how to be, I didn't know how to be a reporter. I didn't know how to be a, um, the, the kind of writer I ended up becoming. Um, so I went to grad school, like like any (laughs) confused (laughs) recent grad. (laughs) Eventually ended up in New York. I I went into a PhD program in philosophy. Ah, okay. And got got my master's in philosophy and was ABD by the time I came to my senses and got out. But that was good, that was a great education. Tell me about that. Well, academic disciplines Train your mind. Uh, you, you, if wh- whatever it is, whether it's you know, what they used to call English, um, <laughs> uh, his- historiography, philosophy, they they each have their own unique uh, intellectual discipline. But it's not just reading and writing. Um, it's a body of knowledge and a, and an approach to that body of knowledge that. Train your mind. You have to. You have to. You have to enter into that and master it. Hmm. And entering into a, 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 an academic discipline and attempting to master it is a valuable uh, undertaking. Uh, once I realized I wasn't suited to be a scholar, certainly not to be a philosopher, I came to my senses and, and went back to my original plan, which was try to make my you know make my way as a writer or and or editor. But I always wanted to work at Harper's. Harper's was my ultimate goal.
1: Had you tried I mean did you had you tried to just go work at Harper's before or?
0: well I met when I was at, at Swanee, I met Jack Hitt, who's a great writer. Wonderful and at writer. the time was an editor at Harper's. Oh, that's right. And he and I shared a mentor, a Spanish professor named Tom Spacerelli, uh, who had a huge impact at me at Swanee, And Met Jack, and and Jack told me that I should come to New York and try to work at Harper's as an intern. He told me about the internship. So I always wanted to do that. And so when I got to the point where I was either write my dissertation or not, I applied to the internship at Harper's, and I got turned down. But I lived in New York, so when somebody else quit on the second day, they called me, so I went in. And then someone quit, the fact checker, quit and then they, they hired me and I was a fact checker for nine months and I loved fact checking but f- fact checking has a expiration date I've done some fact checking probably about uh, nine months of fact checking that's yeah also it's, a, it's all you need and and um and really you you should approach it as 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 a tool um uh, how to how to write a magazine article that's what I, I I I approached fact checking as a discipline all right it's a it's a discipline this is this is how you make sure that this piece is not going to get the magazine sued and it's not going to embarrass the magazine. It's not going to embarrass you and get you fired for making some stupid error. Um, And, but it was a great, I mean, you got to see how all the edit, you get to see how all the edit, all the different editors worked. And we had wonderful, we had a wonderful team of editors at Harper's when I got there and there Lewis, of course, and Ben Metcalf and Paul Tuff, who later went on to edit Saturday night and, writes books on education and Joel Lovell and Cheris Khan and, and Ellen Rosenbush, all these great people to learn from. And so I learned to be an editor from watching them.
1: Hey, it's your host, Aaron Lammer, with a quick word from our sponsor, Random House. Uh, Last week, or not last week, a couple weeks ago, um, Random House was promoting George Saunders' 10th of December story collection. Uh, This week, they are promoting Gary Steingart's Little Failure. You probably know Gary Steingart from his fiction and The New Yorker, his book Super Sad Love Story, Russian Debutante's Handbook. Uh, This is his first work of nonfiction. Mary Carr has called it a memoir for the ages. I just got a copy myself about halfway through reading it and enjoying it very much. Uh, we've got an exclusive excerpt from the book this week on Longform, so go to longform.org to check that out. And thank you very much to Random House for their sponsorship. It helps make this show possible. Um, here I am back with Roger Hodge. And what was the first piece that you, um, you yourself edited there? It's a piece by Adrian McKinty, uh,
0: who's a who's a novelist who had a novel out at the time called uh, Orange Rhymes with Everything. Good memory. And very good novel. And he was a cousin of a good friend of mine in grad school. And I remembered that my friend Aaron Garrett, he's a philosopher, told me this story. A- a- Adrian's from Carrick, Fergus in Northern Ireland. And he told me this story that Adrian had gone back home in August, and which is a, a time when things get hot in all kinds of ways in Northern Ireland. So it sounded like a, it sounded like a piece. So I was a fact checker, mm. uh, but I didn't want to remain a fact checker. So I called up Adrian, we had, we had drinks. He told me the story. I asked him to write a pitch. I took it into the manuscript meeting. And everybody looked at me like, like I was insane.
1: Was that accepted protocol for like a fact checker to be like,
0: hey, I got one too? Not really, but I put it in the pile. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of discussion about whether this piece was worth commissioning. I said, he'll write it on spec. And uh, Colin Harrison was deputy editor at the time. And he said, okay, good, Do it. And Agent did a beautiful job. It was a great piece. Came in, we ran it. And so I had my first piece.
1: And did you quit the fact checking when? When that? No, ended?
0: I I I wasn't able to um, until some someone else left, oh, okay. which was is typical, right? Uh, Jim Nelson was running the reading section. Uh, he left to go to GQ. He's now the editor of GQ. I
1: didn't know he had been at GQ that long. And so, so, so this around. was ninety.
0: This was. I came to Harper's in 96, and then yep. this was 97, early 97. And so Jim left, and I moved to the reading section. And I worked with uh, there with Susan Burton and Joel Lovell and... Um,
1: Check out his long-form podcast. Alexandra
0: Ringe, and we, uh, we had a, a great time doing the section. And then, you know, another person would leave...
1: <laughs> yeah. This is the uh, the flow of life. Yeah. Um so you were there uh it sounds like 10 years before you became the the head over there. That's right. Um was that and amb- once you got to that point where you were I'm an editor at Harper's which is what I wanted to do in the first place. W- did you did you have the ambition to do more or were you like I'm just going to I could keep doing this for the rest of my life?
0: Yeah, I think I felt like I had no ambition to go anywhere else. I, I, uh, it never even occurred to me to go anywhere else. Did you uh, think
1: at that point, wow, Harper, like this Harper's this magazine and this model, where we print it and we mail it to you, this is forever? Like I'm no, I, could be I mean doing the no. It was thing. obvious to me that,
0: that it was obvious to me when I got there that that there were problems with the model. Okay. And everybody was doing websites. This is '96. Yeah, I was gonna say, when
1: did you first, when were you first aware that a magazine should have a website?
0: Well, I was from the moment I knew about websites. Yeah. Uh, when I hadn't really paid that much attention to what people were doing with web publishing until I got to Harper's. When I was in grad school, I mean, I remember Gopher sites. We were, we were, we would look at Gopher Sites, um, which was pre-web. Yeah. Um, I remember, you know, working on a mainframe or a mini. Actually, it was what they called a mini computer, which to me looks like a mainframe. It's a, you know, it's it's a giant. It was a giant box in the basement and we had terminals at Swanee. But I got a Mac at the time and I got my Mac Plus. um, Great, great computer. (laughs) You know, without a hard drive. Uh, by the time, and I always had a Mac, right? I, you know, I kept trading up. I probably had every single model, uh, except during that that time when they had fifteen different computers.
1: The low point. Yeah, uh,
0: but when I got to when I got to Harper's, they had a website already. It was a brochure. It was a it was a very nice brochure, put together by a company called Small World, which was a very good web design shop, and. So, but it was obvious to me that we needed a website and we needed to put our pieces online. But we, it was only a couple of years before I got there that, that, that Harper's got email. You know, so it was, there was a lot happening. When Ben Metcalf got to Harper's three years before I did, the magazine was still being pasted up on boards. Wow. So a lot was hap- had happened in a very short time.
1: There's just like this very small period between like um, like digital production software coming into vogue and like the web all ruining the print business that was <laughs> being built with it. I mean, it, it seems you know it was less than a decade, really. Yeah, before...
0: well, it was, yeah, exactly. And it all happened very fast. And you had all these web publications that appeared and burned out very quickly. So what, oh there's one. At what this time, called? there was
1: there was suck. There was feed. Feed. That's what I'm gonna say everyone who's on this show at some point made a living like writing reviews for feed and got paid more per word than they do now.
0: Oh, I don't, I don't doubt that. Uh, feed was great. Feed was. I always thought of feed as 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 the web version of Harper's.
1: We gotta. Um, we'll, have, we'll have to do like a oral history of and, feed. Um, what
0: What was that guy's name? The The and he's a writer. He writes. He writes books that are. You know, bestsellers now. Stephen Johnson, yeah, was the editor of Feed. Great guy, um, Stephen
1: Berlin Johnson. Yeah, is that yeah, right? Yeah, Is that how, is that his byline now? now? Maybe there was another Stephen Johnson who. Yeah. Um,
0: and a lot of people worked there. A lot of people were edit editors there. Um, they had the uh, the Feed Daily, this this sort of eight hundred word sort of. It wasn't an op ed. It was an essay. It was yeah. it was it was a short, strong. Opinionated essay. They were good. There was also Word, which was a little bit uh, overly designed. It had all kinds of animation and all kinds of stuff moving on the
1: page. Crop duster flies across the screen. Exactly the text.
0: Exactly. And uh, and I think after they went out of business, their all of their files were were they they were all donated to the Museum of Modern Art or something. <laughs> um, and then you had Suck. And in 1995. If you can still go to the Suck Archive. I'll you know,
1: we'll put this in the show notes. There's a great story about Wired did a great uh, story on the, the rise and fall of suck.com. Yeah,
0: and, and so if you, if you go to the Suck archives, the very first post that's archived there is, the net giveth and the net taketh away, <laughs> because we still talked about the net yeah. then. And, um, and it's true. All those, all those great creative magazines, they came up, but they didn't have a business model they what,
1: had, what did people at Harper say when someone, hey, we're going to do feed, which is Harper's on the web? like What was the attitude, the sort of competitive attitude towards them then?
0: Well, only the young people on staff were aware of this. Yeah. And yeah, we were seeing this and we were saying, this stuff is really fun. I mean, some of it's good, some of it's bad. Uh, can't we do something like this? Mm. Can't we do some version of that that leverages what we do so well? And why can't you know? Why don't we outdo them? Yeah, at what they're doing. Were because writers
1: like overlapping between them? That not point?
0: much, not really, not at first. Um, and you know, the Salon shows up at about that time too. Right, right. The salon right. comes in at the late, and Salon kind of had the
1: most money, but they were yeah. the kind of the funded. The funded Salon.
0: Model. Well, Feed was funded too. They had venture capital. Oh, that's right. And they had a burn rate. <laughs> Uh, Then they formed Plastic. Oh, okay. And so they spun off into Plastic, which was going to be the Slashdot model.
1: So what did they think that the business, I mean, you said they didn't have a business model, but what did they think their business
0: model was? They had a business plan, but they thought advertising would come along and and they were a little too early.
1: They were right and wrong. Yeah.
0: So Plastic came along and Plastic was the Slashdot model and it was going to be user-generated content. And again, they were a little too early on that, too. Um, so I saw, I, you know, so I, I my, my career has overlapped with this whole transformation, this whole revolution yeah. in, in publishing. And so I saw all of these, I saw several generations of web magazines arise and, and burn out. Um, none of them were making enough money to sustain themselves. And um, ultimately, what's left? Well, mo- mostly it's it's uh, it's all the old dinosaur magazines. Have most of them? Are, most of us are still around. <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: Most, most <laughs> and, not
0: all. Uh, not all. I mean, some of them were killed for bad reasons that were were not really responsible. Um, but you know, the, the New Yorker, Atlantic. Harper's, The Atlantic is the one who 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 eventually became the most aggressive online. To the point to where the the web presence really overshadows the print.
1: They're publishing a lot.
0: They sure are, and uh, and I think they've done they've done a great job in 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 adapting to the new marketplace. I, personally, I think there the, there's maybe too much too much uh, too much there. Yeah, there's so much there that it uh, it's it's hard to. Navigate.
1: I want to get to the present day, but so you, you, you moved up at Harper's in two thousand and six ish. Yes, two thousand six. Two thousand six. So we're sort Mm -hmm. of halfway along this evolution, this internet evolution. That so
0: Lewis Lewis uh, left to start the quarterly, Lapham's Quarterly,
1: great magazine,
0: and uh, much to my surprise, it fell to me. I had I had been deputy. How long had Lewis been there before he took off? Uh twenty eight years maybe. Yeah, okay.
1: So when you took that job you were like, okay, set my retirement clock now.
0: W- well <laughs> uh yeah, I suppose. Um it was a it was a challenging environment for reasons I won't go into. But um I I knew I I ultimately I knew I knew that um I wouldn't be there for twenty eight years. Okay. Uh from the very beginning.
1: Um and and I wasn't. <laughs> what did you feel like your mandate was when you when you took the reins? Well, I think my mandate was
0: to continue to publish the magazine. That yeah. That that was to 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 sort of keep the keep the project going. We always thought of uh, Harper's as this multi generational American project. That that for whatever you know that we were fortunate enough to participate in, for our brief time and uh i've always thought of harper's as a tradition uh a living tradition uh and so to keep the to keep the faith really um not to be static not to not to not to not to publish a museum piece uh but to keep the magazine evolving and keep the magazine innovative and do good work and um and start some fires and we did uh uh we had a great time but we've jumped ahead a little bit because what we did before i became editor was we started along this path toward a a, a very robust web presence this is the paul ford with right? paul
1: yeah he's been on uh, for uh, other stories about this uh check out paul ford's long yeah. form podcast
0: so i've been reading web i'd been reading f train yeah and i and i went to paul and i said paul would you meet with me i'm I, in, in my ideal world paul ford would be designing the harper's website
1: so you knew about paul ford pre he was he was well known enough for for his writing online it's, it's completely hard to tell like who who knows about you know this is a very well, early time you have to understand i
0: was uh, a serious web aficionado i mean I, I i was i was trying to teach myself Pearl. i was um, i was trying to figure out a way to build the Harpers that I the 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 digital harpers that I had in my mind yeah Um, and I thought and I came across F train and I read Paul and Paul's writings about um, uh, about information architecture and I went deep into that and I want and so I thought well why should I try to learn all this stuff that's ridiculous I I I'll get Paul to do it (laughs) (laughs) so I brought Paul in. And and managed to get him on staff, and and he read and I had already taken the website through one or two iterations, and had been writing an online column, the Weekly Review, for years. Uh, so Paul came in and we, he and I helped him build this site kit for harpers.org that could that that was great. It was a great site kit, and it could have been an, an amazing website. Um, as it was, it was a pretty good
1: website. What do you mean? I, I'm not familiar with the term site kit, like a content well, management system. Kind yeah. Of? yeah, well,
0: it was more than a content management system. It was, um, it was the the engine beneath this the the content management system that was so flexible, and he ended up re you know throwing it out and rewriting it several times. Um, but the idea was we were going to, and we built the archive the. You know, century and a half archive of harpers in
1: house scanned it all at 666 Broadway who was doing all the scanning I feel like I asked Paul this too but I don't remember the answer who scanned all that stuff Paul by himself
0: well he had some help Uh, he got this big sheet feeder we made a deal with the library we got a, a, a library archive of the magazine and cut it
1: so they let you cut the like 1902 harpers on the spine wow we cut it and scanned it, fed it through. Um, and but, you must have thought this was—I mean, this was a very daring project at the time. No one had—no one had their archive up at that juncture. I don't think uh,
0: the New Yorker had its CDs. Uh, the CDs, right? Yeah. Uh, there, some people had archives. Uh, the the TLS had an archive behind a paywall. Most of these archives were were behind paywalls. Right. And you had to subscribe to them separately from magazines.
1: It's amazing how far we have not come since then. Like the New Yorker digital edition is just the CD on your computer. Yeah,
0: yeah. I think they're gonna. I think they're gonna blow that up. But I, I heard a rumor. But I, I don't know. I've heard the same rumor. Uh, <laughs>
1: but uh, the uh, so we
0: built this great digital archive, uh, and then we were forced to keep it behind the paywall. But at least we got it open to subscribers.
1: Did you think you were? Did you
0: think otherwise? It was never completely clear. The signals were changing day to day. But uh, but the idea, we were going to be able to leverage that archive to do all kinds of amazing things. Um, and, I mean, Paul and I had big plans. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about we, we, it. Mean, we were going to leverage. I mean, there's so much information out there that is just there. Yeah. It's not really being organized and exploited. All this radio um, going way back TV going way back you could build timelines using the using um, hundred if you have 150 160 year archive of American history in your magazine you can take that and and start reaching out to this other information that's available that's in like archive.org and all these other repositories where it's hard to get to and pull it out. And build these things on the fly using these these scripts that Paul w- w- wrote. I mean, they were there. Um, but we weren't really permitted to do it. Uh, so then by the time I became editor, I was hoping that as editor, I could push us further in that direction. So that, so that Harper's wouldn't be just this print magazine that was becoming more and more irrelevant because nobody could get to it. Right. And it was, uh, you know, yeah, sure. It, w- it was reaching its 230,000 print subscribers, but the, wow, but it wasn't that many. That's, I mean, w- that's
1: a lot. I mean, that's like uh, people are going to hear that and have their mind blown that Harper's right. was reaching 230. It still 000. is. Yeah,
0: I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure the circulation hasn't really fallen. Um, and we were we were reaching people. You know, and we would put selective pieces out. Yeah. Uh, the one piece that we ever published first online. Uh, was Scott Horton's Guantanamo suicides mm. piece, which won a National Magazine Award for reporting, and um, is what I think got me fired, because I pushed so hard to get that out online before it went in, went into print. Um,
1: what was your reasoning behind putting that out before? Because
0: the source needed it to be out. Ah, okay. Uh, it needed to go. It needed to be out before we could get it into print um multiple sources. I mean that 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 piece was so well sourced. Um anyway, uh so my mandate, my personal mandate as editor of Harper's was to push that magazine in um into the 21st century,
1: into the future or at least and, the and present.
0: And 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 to to continue to publish a, a great print magazine, but to but to use all of those resources and to, to really expand that digital that digital strategy I guess you call it uh, in in such a way that we would be able to really reach a, a, a vast audience the the kind of audience it should be reaching the magazine the Harper's is still a good magazine it's great. Uh, but you know it's not really part of the it's not part of the discourse discourse because it's hidden
1: and the people deliberately who, hidden the people who write consistently for Harper's and make their career writing out of Harper's are largely off the map as writers to people who don't read Harper's
0: well look at Tom Frank Uh, he should be reaching a a, a gigantic audience with every essay that appears in Harper's
1: he should be a a person of a Paul Krugman status in terms of popular culture
0: Uh, but he he, he reaches a very substantial audience a 230,000 right um Audience,
1: what were your plans for, for bringing that in, Harper's into the digital age? How would have you approached it?
0: Well, in the way that I've described, we were, we we had we had, we were building this this very flexible um, site kit that would allow us to publish to to um, uh, say an iPad. The iPad wasn't in existence when we when Paul designed yeah. this thing, but it would have been very easy. It would have just been another script. Right. To, to generate that now it's no big deal like y- y- y'all deal with that now all the time I mean
1: yeah well, there's a million tools to
0: yeah all, to all these tools are out there but they weren't really there before right. um, I mean you have you know the Atavist Atavis. site kit uh, and there's the, a gazillion you know, you know there's there's a bunch of them now. 900 clones yeah. that do the same so now thing. there's no point like yep. now I mean I think Paul would be the first to say is that, is that now all that stuff has been superseded there are new you know it's now sort of a commodity right know? it's off the shelf it can do all that stuff so, I mean, now Harper's is on a, uh, is on a tablet
1: too. And, yeah, but in a sort and, of and, you know, a pdf format. Yeah,
0: the OA is, is the same kind of thing. We didn't have, we don't, the OA doesn't have the money to really generate a, a- A native application. A native app for the platform with all the bells and whistles. I hope, I hope eventually we'll, we'll be able to put it on one of these platforms we mentioned. Yeah. Um, and there's so much we could do with the OA. I mean, I, uh, with this music issue- to put music, you know, music samples, in, integrate them with pieces and and video. We have a we have a thing on our website right now uh, with uh, Dom Flemons playing uh, "Can You Blame the Colored Man" on his banjo, uh, which is just amazing. Uh, and you know that's a beautiful thing we could do with the with the with a. Uh, with a with an application on a tablet. We, we, we don't have that yet, but we will eventually. Um, so, so all that stuff, all, all that history with Harper's is, is interesting to me, mostly because not because, you know, we were prevented from doing things, but it, it's, it's not unique. Yeah. It's not unique to have um, the business side saying, no, 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 no. Where's, where are you going to how are you going to pay for it? Where's, what's the money? I mean, all of that's very sensible. Because you have to, you have to pay for it all. You can't sure. just, you can't just go out and spend the money without, without a plan for, for how you're going to get a return. But um, what's interesting to me is that it uh, overlaps with the whole history of of publishing um, over the last twenty years, and how so many publications have guaranteed their obsolescence ultimately. Yeah. Um, or they've committed suicide by training readers to expect everything to be free, like right. the newspapers. Who who rushed into web publishing without figuring out how they were going to retain their print readers? Well,
1: it comes uh, down to sort of what you said about oh, that, you know, that's sensible to ask how are you going to pay for this, but isn't it also sensible to say, hey, do you really think that these two hundred and thirty thousand print subscribers are all just going to hang around here forever? That this that this previous business model is is going to sustain itself, and that when all these people die. Who's going to replace them? Yeah, who, who's, and, who's going and, to do and that? And it's
0: a different market. I think I really do think that, to a large extent, the people who are who are just going to read on paper, are not the same as the people you reach online. Yeah, some of them are. There's a lot of overlap, but a lot of people do both. I mean, I personally would rather read most long pieces on a piece of paper, uh, on in a magazine, a beautifully designed and printed magazine. I do read. A, I read a lot of stuff on tablets too.
1: Um, I come in at the op, from the opposite direction. Although I, I definitely see the value of both. Um, I mean, I think the the biggest operative difference there isn't the reading experience. It's whether sharing things and whether the sort of communal aspects of reading are important to you, and and which one sort of mirrors mm-hmm. the people mm-hmm. you're around. For me, you know, sending people articles is actually a great part of the joy of Mm -hmm. of being a reader. And it's disappointing to me at times when I'm like, you got to check this out, Uh, come to my house and I'll give you the new Harper's, you know? Yeah. Um, And
0: I'd love, I love doing that too. And and it's frustrating to me when, when, when things are not um, shareable. Yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, we, we, we don't put the whole issue out on the web for a variety of reasons. Um, But we do put out most of it eventually, you Mm -hmm. know, and, in time in chunks and in, you know we 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 put it out in sequence over the course of this over the course of the cycle yeah and uh we have enough material to where it, it works for us um joe Hagan's piece on charlie rich just went up and has gotten a, 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 a tremendous reception um and uh and joe's piece, I mean it's 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 an amazing piece of reporting it's not just a, a piece of appreciation about a dead musician. Um, he went to Memphis uh, in search of, of Charlie Rich and people who knew Charlie Rich. And uh, Natalie Rosenberg, who, who was an early pr- producer of of Rich uh, when he was an R&B artist before he became a country guy, hands him a stack of letters that were... From the sent to the Charlie Rich fan club in 1972, written by all these 12-year-old girls who were in love with Charlie Rich, this 48-year-old gray-haired country singer. So what does Joe do? Joe is a great reporter. He's a staff reporter for New York Magazine. He tracked all the women down, those who were still alive that he could find, and built this piece around these women's experience of being completely in love with this star. So it's a piece about fandom and it's a piece about um it's a piece about love and longing and loneliness because the music is so lonely. Um so we reprint yeah. some of these letters and uh we put it up online. It, we didn't put it up online the first few weeks. Uh we've been putting things out like I said in sequence tremendous response. Um and it and that response brings people to the magazine. I mean ultimately the Oxford American is a print magazine um and it, that's that's its identity and there's no reason that everything has to be like everything else there's plenty of room in the media world for us to have broadcast radio podcasts uh, you know websites tablets and print print is there's no reason that print has to go away or or there's no reason that it should go away it's 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 one of it's it's health it's part of our i mean i think of part of our healthy media you know ecosystem for lack of a better word uh, but we we still want to be available on the digital
1: platforms for people that want to read that way i think that this the this sort of print not print argument is sometimes skewed to to be about like, oh, do you like to read on your tablet or your your print? And I think what it really comes down to more is what do you do for the people who pay you and what do you do for the people who don't pay you and how much of your energy goes to only the people who are literally giving you money and how much your energy goes to everyone regardless of whether they give you money. And from what I understand at at the tail end of um, your time at Harper's, I think it's Pretty widely known that uh, Rick MacArthur, who is the publisher of Harper's, uh, believes pretty strongly that you should give people who don't pay nothing. Right. That's uh, he. Uh, if if nothing else, his opinion is very clear on the matter, mm-hmm. um, and it's not an opinion that is very popular right now among anyone else mm-hmm. or many other people. Um, but it's a clear opinion, and I, I wonder how you how you've come to think about that about where where the, where the Oxford American dollars go.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's, I think Rick's, uh, Rick MacArthur's view uh, makes a certain amount of sense. Uh, but how are you going to get your new readers? That's the question. Um, and don't you want, I mean, my, my, my sense is, don't you want to be part of the larger conversation about politics or writing uh, don't you want to be reaching that audience and that potential audience and to my mind it's just it ha yes we we're going to put most of our energy into um, the print magazine Mm -hmm. um, because that's what that's what we do that's our primary focus that's and and it's and it's this it's through circulation and advertising in the print magazine that we um, derive our revenue and how we survive so yes we have to that, that we're not going to we're not going to put more in, in energy into th- those who are not paying for our product but on the other hand I think that there, this is how we get more people to, to, to be part of our of, of our literary community is we reach them through the web and then hopefully they will subscribe for me, like you said, it's not an either-or. Mm-hmm. It's a question of what is your business model so that you can sustain the thing you love. Yeah. And uh, our business model is complex. It's not just circulation and advertising. We also are involved in in, in other kinds of, of um, activities like our restaurant uh, and performance space south on Main and in Little Rock. Uh, we're hoping to do broadcasting out of that space eventually. And we have a partnership with NPR now that... NPR just ran a piece um, in collaboration with us this past weekend, and we do a lot of video on the web. Uh, Dave Anderson's Lost, um, um, so Lost series won a National Magazine Award a couple of years ago for video. So we we do we do invest uh, quite a bit in our online publishing, um, just not as much as we do in in the print. If at some point the revenue from advertising on the web we'll justify more we'll do. We'll certainly do more
1: what, was, what is the experience of um, we didn't really discuss you leaving Harper's but being in an embattled position where you, you knew you were embattled um, that you knew that you were in conflict with a person who who was in some way in control of, of the destiny of the publication where did that leave you when you left and you came to Oxford America and ha- having been through that
0: well it's not so unusual yeah and it's the fate of most editors in chief after all, yeah uh, to uh, to leave involuntarily <laughs> it's uh, so there's nothing particularly uh, I don't know that there were that there was a lesson to be drawn from that um, but the Oxford American has been a pure publishing experience for me, a pure editorial experience because I didn't have that conflict mm. uh, with the business side. And the whole time I've been at the OA, everything has been perfectly in sync in terms of the mission. So it's just been a joy, really.
1: When you you worked under MacArthur at, at Harper's and I know that your predecessor at Oxford American was the founder and was someone who was very... Uh, intrinsically tied to the identity of the magazine. Um, So you have a certain amount of experience with sort of a a centralized cult of personality um, exerting a a lot of influence on on a magazine. How do you avoid that yourself? How how do you avoid making the Oxford American you? My ambition for the OA is for it to be a writer's
0: magazine, Mm -hmm. not an editor's magazine. I'm not that fond of the idea of theme issues. Uh, we, we have a very successful franchise in music issues and I think if you have f- four issues, one big theme issue a year is plenty. Yeah. Um, because, and, the re- and this What this speaks to is the idea of the question of being an editor's magazine or a writer's magazine because it, it, when you have big themes, it's the editors coming up with the big ideas and the writers filling those ideas. Not, not, the, not the editors listening to the writers and figuring out what the writers are interested in. And the writers are the ones who are telling the stories. And so my approach is to listen to the writers, to, tell, let the, to give the writers uh, an opportunity to tell their stories in the best possible way and to bring them together in such a way that themes emerge. Right now we're putting together what you, <laughs> the spring issue is almost a hunting issue in a way. We have several pieces that that involve hunting in one way or another. Steve Featherstone is writing about the, uh, the Python challenge in Florida where all these hundreds of people went out, uh, to harvest Burmese pythons. And then there are other pieces about hunting as well, uh, in one way or another hunting, um, in some cases hunting for God, but, um, uh, so I, as an editor, look at this material, look at these writers, look at, the, at these texts and say, okay, well, this, let's, what kind of a pattern is emerging? Uh, let's put these pieces together in this issue. And so it's not, it's not about me, really. It's, I, get, I get some aesthetic uh, satisfaction out of putting all this stuff together and making a coherent whole with, with the artwork and, and, um, and all the writing um, and the compositional aspects of that. But really, it's about the writers, it's about Roseanne Cash, it's about Joe Hagan, it's about John Jeremiah Sullivan, it's about Amanda Petrusic, it's about Jamie Quattro. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's about these writers telling their stories. It's about Lucy Alibar, uh, Carl the Raping Goat Saves Christmas, this is an <laughs> amazing story. Um, so when I, you know, I feel kind of embarrassed that we've been talking about my career because it, to me, like, my career isn't all that interesting um, insofar as I've been an editor. I'm much more interested in talking about writers um, and stories and um, that's the main thing is telling these stories creating this um, platform this context for the best possible storytelling whether it's fiction nonfiction essay it's all storytelling
1: I don't think we're going to have a better place to end than that Uh, thank you for coming in Roger my pleasure Um, check out Oxford American we'll link to it in the show notes Uh, the music issue is on the newsstands now and we'll be back next week and that was the Longform Podcast. Uh, thanks very much to Roger Hodge for coming in. Uh, thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Our editor, Lauren Kirchner. Our intern, Sarah Button. Uh, if you want to support this podcast, maybe check out a story from the Atavist. Go to longform.org and come see us next week right here.